marketing is not about finding customers to buy. Marketing is about getting customers to buy in. The Strive for More podcast will resonate with those that strive for more in any aspect of their lives. Follow along on one man's journey on the path to a meaningful life through long-form interviews with everyone from successful entrepreneurs, artists, physicians, leading scientists, social media influencers, and professional athletes. This episode of the Strive for More podcast is brought to you by the Strive Accelerator, which is a weekly mastermind group for entrepreneurs. So if you're not seeing the success you want, or you're searching for a community of like-minded business owners, then send an email to jared at striveaccelerator.ca to book a call and learn more. Our next guest is the co-founder and CEO of Cult Collective. His professional passion is helping brand leaders master new ways of engaging customers, prospects, and staff. In particular, he's committed to helping his clients embrace eight specific marketing beliefs and behaviors he's discovered while researching the most beloved brands on the planet. This guest has held marketing roles at John Deere and the Home Depot and was also formerly the head of retail marketing at RAP, Omnicom's preeminent CRM agency. He co-founded Cult in 2012 as and consulted with Harley-Davidson, Canadian Tire, Zappos, Best Buy, Carters, Oshkosh, Keurig, and dozens of other brands. He speaks regularly at conferences like South by Southwest, Global Shop, Inbound, NRF, CMA, Digiday, and The Gathering, which he co-founded. He is the co-author of Fix, Break the Addictions That Are Killing Brands. He is also an adjunct professor at Mount Royal University, holds a master's degree in marketing communications from Northwestern University, and a bachelor of arts from Brigham Young University. He moved to Calgary from Dallas in 2010 with his wife, three children, and obnoxious dog. Please welcome to the show, Chris Neeland. Well, the man himself, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I know that you have achieved so much in your life. I look at your LinkedIn profile, I, I look at your speaker's bio, and I just think to myself, geez, this guy has accomplished a ton in a lot of different domains. And so if you had to start all over right now, if you had to build, let's say, a million dollar business in the next year. Starting right now, what would you do? Well, it's interesting that caveat of making it a million dollars. Um, I, I always think it's funny. I, I, I just recently spoke at an event called F Up Nights. I don't know if uh, um, you've heard of this organization. It's like in 90 countries and it's where entrepreneurs share their biggest uh, screw up. And uh, I talked about how excited I was the first time in my life that I literally had a million dollar idea as measured by the fact that we convinced investors to give us a million dollars to birth it. It was called playing up hockey. And uh, the kids I teach at Mount Royal always get a kick because I always start my semester by showing my uh, um, my six minutes of fame on Dragon's Den, where I went on Dragon's Den to pitch this idea. And uh, Kevin O'Leary called me a savage, greedy pig on the way out of the den when I declined his uh, Offer so there's some entertainment value there, but I used to I used to put a lot of weight into a million dollar idea, and I, I don't do so much anymore. Partly because I, I we we spent that million dollars in less than eighteen months and lost all the money for the investors that participated in it. And I've come to realize that uh, you probably should be thinking about a ten or even a hundred million dollar idea and investors mostly one, a billion dollar idea or, or better. And uh, those are harder to come by. But uh, the real money, when you start talking about Silicon Valley and the like, is 
you got to demonstrate a pathway to a billion dollars or else people don't seem to care as much. But anyway, aside from the ticky tackness of me nitpicking your question there, uh, you know, I'd say a couple of thoughts. First, you know, I'm, I'm in the professional services business and it is a wonderful job and it's a lousy business, it's a business defined by, you know, creating an asset that can be monetized while I sleep, creating an asset that could be sold for multiples on earnings. Uh, you know, so my day job that pays my salary at Cult is a lousy business, but it's a great job. I love what I do. I make a good living. I'm able to uh, to work with amazing brands. I'm just not ever going to sell it for any real money because it's kind of like I am the business. And if I was going to retire, the business becomes less uh, attractive to somebody else. So I think the first thing you got to do is you got to decide what are you doing? Are you creating a lifestyle, uh, creating something that you're going to want to do for the rest of your life and can um, give you freedom and financial freedom and, and, per- and you know, freedom of time? Um, but there is no intention to ever sell it or or just the opposite. Are you trying to create something that somebody else will find tremendously valuable that you can take public or that you can be acquired? Uh, and they're two different things. So I think, you know, and don't confuse the two. I think people get unhappy when they think they have one and then they discover that they've actually mm-hmm. built the other thing. Um, and then if part of what you're getting at, Jared, in your question is kind of in the face of, either a pandemic or the recession caused by the pandemic, what might I do? Um, you know, I'm a big disciple of a Scott Galloway. Is that, you, are you familiar with this guy, this kind of thought leader, this professor from NY Stern, an entrepreneur? No, never heard of him. Um, he, he's pretty good. Um, he has a podcast and a, and a blog and a newsletter. He has a TV show on Vice Media. But he talks a lot about how COVID in addition to killing hundreds of thousands of of, uh, Americans and Canadians, has killed shoulder-to-shoulder businesses. So anything that's sort of dependent upon you being in a confined space next to somebody else, live events, post-secondary education, airplanes, Disneyland, you know, those types of things, that those are just horrible businesses uh, to be in. And, uh, you know, so if you were going to start from scratch, You'd want to create something, even if this pandemic blows over in the next six to 24 months, you know, understand that it's changed our mindset. It's not going to be the only time that we face this type of existential crisis. So creating something that's more distributed, more remote, more uh, mobile, you know, those types of things is I, I would look for that. And then I would, uh, I think the single largest opportunity, a lot of people talk about AI and I'm just not convinced. I, I, I'm convinced in you know the next decade, I'm not convinced in the next year that AI is going to do much or, or, or even blockchain for that matter. But I am convinced that healthcare, particularly in the States, needs to be completely reimagined. And if you're a Google or an Amazon or a Facebook or an apple, if you're one of these bohemists that is the real pandemic profiteer, the only way that you can grow is going after the trillion dollar industry that is healthcare. So building you know, small companies, service sector businesses, digital solutions that could then be gobbled up by one of those giant corporations that are, you know, sitting on war chests of cash, I think would become really interesting because that's sort of the next big frontier of complete disruption and, and reimagining how uh, 
health, particularly in the states where healthcare is a business versus in Canada, it's more of a social service and a, you know, a human right. Um, I think there's exciting stuff going on in that space. What kind of principles from maybe past failures in your businesses do you think that you would carry forward with you as like guiding principles for that potential business? Well, again, so I, I, I'm, I skew towards lifestyle businesses. So I get less excited about, hey, here's a business that could go make a million dollars and more excited about, hey, here's a problem I'm passionately interested in solving. I, I've, I've often thought, because I came into entrepreneurship very late in life, that there's only two reasons to be an entrepreneur. It's too difficult otherwise. <laughs> One is you are completely unemployable, right? You're just, uh, you hated school, you're belligerent, you're insubordinate. And I don't mean that you're a jerk. I just mean that you're just wired in such a way that you don't do good inside constraint or conformity. And, uh, uh, and I, I have a kid that's that way. I have a business partner that, that, that is that way. And that's a superpower. That's not a defect. That's a feature. Uh, but you need to be self-aware enough to know that I could never um, you know, really thrive or be satisfied within a, a traditional company. Or it's that you have found, I, I call it an injustice. That might be too strong of a word, but there's just something that's so flawed or broken or inappropriate that it that you you're losing sleep that it's not it's not remedied that somebody hasn't fixed it yet and you know first thing you should do is find somebody with deeper pockets and better capabilities who has already decided to fix it and then only if you've determined that they're insufficient should you build your own solution it's one of the reasons why I always kind of roll my eyes when somebody starts another charity it's like if you really want to cure cancer the world doesn't need another small mom pa charity asking for donations. There's substantial, highly efficient, well-run organizations already chasing that down. Just go work for them, right? But if you find something that you don't feel like is being properly addressed, like in the case of Cult, for example, we did not see agencies that were advising clients against the overuse of mass media or markdowns. And I found it uh, disingenuous, I, even unethical. That was how people were advising businesses to create engagement. So when I looked around the ecosystem, I didn't see uh, agencies that didn't have that predisposition or that bias. And so I created one that did so. So it was me trying to right uh, a wrong in the world. Um, so, you know, I think what I would carry forward is not just doing something because you think that there's money to be made there, but doing something because you want to spend, you know, you want that to be part of your legacy. It's what you want to wake up every day, uh, you know, trying to, to cure. On that note, I've heard you say that marketing schools uh, are just training their students to be what you call markdowners and not marketers. Yeah. So if that's not the right way to perceive marketing as markdowners, what is? Well, I mean, it's it, that's what's that's what's so uh, frustrating for me is when you think <laughs> marketing schools will talk about the four P's of marketing of product, price, place, and promotion, and they'll talk about they'll paint this picture of this noble role where the marketer essentially owns the customer experience and is empowered to create. Uh, more profitable, more profitability for the business. But then when you actually look at the job descriptions, and we've looked at hundreds of job descriptions, and over 80% of them 
are really just come and help us manage our communications, come and help us run our email program or our website or our events or our social media. And they're very channel specific and very communications heavy. And most of the communications that you're talking about are promoting, you know, sales events. And it's like, well, what happened to, you know, informing product development or what happened to imagining new ways to service the customer or what happened about imagining new ways to distribute. I always loved the example of Keurig. I mean, Keurig was in the coffee business and the next thing you know, they're in the coffee machine business. And then you can put non-Keurig, you know, K-cups inside the machines because it's kind of like the old adage of, do you want to, you know, sell the printer or sell the toner? Uh, You know, there's money to be made on both sides of that equation. And I just don't see marketers being invited into these conversations. And I don't see marketers beating down the door, insisting to be, you know, doing something more substantive. They seem inappropriately content just dealing with the superficial business of storytelling and creativity. And, uh, you know, it's fun. It's sexy. I don't, I understand the appeal of it, but it just is a fraction of the impact if they were actually wearing the true hat of a, you know, CMO or a VP of marketing. This is obviously an impossible question to answer succinctly, but why is that? Why is there that separation? Well, I've never let succinctness stop me from trying to answer a question. (laughs) I, uh, I am, I'm the opposite of succinct. <laughs> now, I think it's two things, and one sounds conspiracy theorist, but there is, there is a um, you know, 50-year-old advertising industrial complex that is financially motivated to the tune of $200 billion a year spent on paid media to not you know, disrupt the apple cart. And a lot of these people are 50 plus years old. A lot of these people, I've even talked with them in confidence who have said, I, we're not idiots. We acknowledge the problem. I'm just hoping that we can you know, keep it alive a little bit longer till I retire and we'll let the younger generation come in and figure it out. So they're kind of just biding their time with no real financial motivation to change it because they're just a year or two away from exiting. Um, and, and so that, that's sort of what I would say is the malicious, unethical part is that there's just too many people financially incentivized to keep the, keep it the way that it is. Um, and then the other part is, you know, why do people buy, uh, you know, infomercial pills for, you know, rapid weight loss or, or think that, uh, you know, something's going to improve their sex life or regrow their hair or get rid of their cellulite. It's, we just live in a society of quick fixes and uh, doing the, you know, it's really easy, or I should say it's really simple to know how to lose weight. It's just not easy, right? And, and we, we, can, we confuse those things all the time. It's simple. Eat less and work out more. <laughs> You'll start losing weight. And yet more than, I think I heard over 80% of Americans are uh, overweight and 60% are technically obese. And so why? Because you know what? It's easier to enjoy ice cream or to eat too much or to work out too little. Uh, and so people don't want to hear that real marketing takes work. Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could just, you know, sh- put a TV commercial out or just do a 20% off sale and all of your problems would go away. And uh, unfortunately in the beginning they do, Uh, they work. Uh, It's only after you realize that you've now become addicted to those things. And and unless you're advertising or discounting, people stop coming. 
And it's because you've decided to train your audience that will, our relationship is based on bribery. And, uh, you know, so, uh, and we, and we counsel with many, many brands who only after the fact say, Oh my goodness, what have we done? We've created a monster here. We've reached a point of diminishing returns. And not only is the business unhealthy, but their jobs are, unrewarding they're unfulfilled uh they, they look to the brands that are doing it right with tremendous envy um and it's kind of sad it's why you know, i almost feel like more of a uh, of a therapist sometimes than a marketing consultant because i just hear sob story after sob story of uh you know we I, if i could do it over again i would have done it differently kind of thing you mentioned some quick fixes are you selling those by any chance no we're the opposite wow shoot I heard hair regrowth and thought, I'm in. Well, listen, obviously your video is not turned on. I'm uh, <laughs> I, I, I balded at age. I was bald by 30 years old. So uh, I, I, I myself have fallen victim. In fact, my mother got me a Rogaine subscription for my 30th birthday. <laughs> yeah. um, so no, I mean, I, I get the appeal of it, but we should just accept that most good things in life are the result of hard work and effort, not some quick fix scheme. Given that I think we can all agree that this kind of quick fix marketing doesn't work, and I know that you advocate a cult-like following for brands to take part in, and I think that for any rational person, that just it's like a visceral reaction to say, that sounds incredible. How could I create that? Not just for the sustainability of a business, but for impact on customers. But it seems so hard to achieve. How do you do it? Well, I mean, so let me correct you on one thing. The quick fix marketing stuff does work temporarily. It's the reason why Groupon got to become worth billions, and then uh, I think they're now out of business, or at least they're a fraction of their original of their initial size. Is you know, just like the first time you get high or, or whatever, or you take a pain medication, like there is an effect. And it's desirable. It's delicious. It feels good, whatever your metaphor is. It's, it's the fact that what is required to maintain that high, and do you really go into it understanding the lack of sustainability and how you're essentially selling your soul? So, uh, I mean, if they just were all, you know, if, if every banner ad failed, if every Super Bowl commercial was a waste, if every print ad, you know, was a bust, then it would be easier to say, don't do it. It's the fact that they do work on occasion or temporarily that you have to start to say, but you need to be more disciplined than that, or else you're going to have to become addicted to these things and start overusing them and eventually abusing them. And, and as we've seen, particularly of late with what, with what the industry calls the retail apocalypse, is that then there's this huge overdosing effect where you're not, now you're dead on arrival and just business after business after business going under because they've realized they've built something that is completely unsustainable. Um, so that, so, you know, they, they, they work, they just don't work for long is, is I, I think a big problem. Um, and then I forget the second point that I was going to, what's the antidote then? Well, the anecdote is understanding that there's a different objective, right? So we like to say marketing is not about finding customers to buy. Marketing is about getting customers to buy in, so buying is very transactional, and frankly, it has this um, uh, you know, temporary benefit for both parties. I bought from your restaurant and enjoyed a meal for an hour. You enjoyed my 25 bucks for you know, one time. 
But if I buy in, I start to repeat, meaning that I'm going to come back without need for additional stimuli. I might start to buy more. I might bring my friends. I might start buying more things from the menu, getting appetizers or drinks or desserts. Uh, and then most importantly, I will start to refer and telling other people that, have you been to this restaurant down the way? It's fantastic. And so now you're worth more to me than that $25. Your, your lifetime value might be $500 in a year from your personal spend and another $1,000 from your influence or your positive review or, or your you know referral. So really understanding that each customer is worth so much more than that temporary transaction will allow you to start investing differently in that experience. I was talking to my, I have a 15 year old kid that's starting to shovel sidewalks. And unfortunately here in Alberta, we got a ridiculous amount of snow this morning. Uh, so he has four neighbors and he shovels their driveway. And I said, come here, let me show you this thing, buddy. And I, and I said, what do you think is the most important thing that you should shovel? And he says, well, I'm here to shovel the driveway. I go, actually, the driveway is the least important thing that you need to shovel. The, the most important thing is the doorstep because that's where the customer is going to go up and down. That's where there's the greatest risk of injury. It's where they're going to – the first thing they're going to see when they come outside is, has my guy been here or not? Is, is, the, is the steps in front of my door shovel? Secondly is the sidewalk because there's a city bylaw and a homeowners association that says the sidewalk has to be cleared within 24 hours of snowfall. So the customer is actually going to get a fine if the sidewalk's not done. And if you do the sidewalk on the side, do you stop at the property line or do you want to go all the way to the next guy's driveway? He says, we'll stop at the property line. I go, that's surely all you're getting paid for. But the likelihood that if you go all the way to the other guy's driveway, that maybe now the neighbor might say, hey, who's the kid that's doing your lawn? He's doing my driveway or he's doing my sidewalk. I really appreciate it. Would you mind you know, him coming up? Or if you do the, if you, because uh, we bring a broom out outside of shoveling, we really broom off and sweep off the patio. And I go, that's going to make sure that this customer, when somebody else comes around and says, hey, I can shovel your walk for five bucks cheaper, and uh, they're going to be more resistant to the competitive appeal. And, and one of the customers that I, is ironic that actually was the one that I was giving him this lesson on gave him a $15 tip. Uh, and I go, see, those are, it's like when you pay attention to making the experience just a little bit better than what they were expecting, then good things start to happen. Right? And I, I, I didn't know the guy was going to give him a tip. I don't know if the neighbors next door are going to refer or not, but the likelihood goes up if you bake into your experience a little something extra. You know, Chinese restaurants have been doing it forever with fortune cookies. The Lululemon bag was a big part of their success story because those bags became lunch boxes that women started carrying to the office. Um, there's just, you know, finding, like, I like that when we counsel with clients, I like to say, what about your experience is going to be the most remarkable part? And remarkable is not synonymous with exceptional. Remarkable is synonymous with buzzworthy or notable, meaning what will they remark about? And if you haven't engineered that, if it's, you know, not, you know, putting a little extra in the bag or, you know, walking them out to their car or, uh, you know, doing a little something extra, then you're never going to have the added benefit of a cult-like follower. If being customer-centric is so impactful, why don't more companies do just that? 
Well, partly because they're organized by channel, not by customer. So I hate when I go into big companies and they've got, well, here's the e-commerce team, this is the PR team, and here's the social media team, here's the flyer team. And it's like everybody here is now motivated to optimize their specific channel. And nobody here is championing the customer, what their needs are, where they're being undervalued, what new products or services they might like to buy. So a lot of it begins with just the systemic misalignment like what I, when I, when, uh, of how you're organized. When we invited Yeti to the gathering, I love that he talked about they don't have channel managers, they have community managers. So they have somebody that's responsible for bull riding, somebody that's responsible for fishing, somebody that's responsible for camping. Uh, and it's like their job is to understand everything about that universe and where could Yeti add value? Because you know while Yeti started as a very expensive cooler, They've now branched off into camping chairs and, and you know, uh, ramblers and uh, apparel and, uh, you know, a, a variety of different services that would say they're here to service a group of customers in whatever way they may need to be serviced. Apple's obviously the, the quintessential example of that. You know, they used to be a computer company. Now they're in the music business, they're in the movie business, they're in the streaming business, they're in the device business because they, they, have, they understand customer management, not channel management. So that's part of it. Uh, and then the other part is I just think people don't realize what business they're actually in. Marketers should be the constant voice of the customer. But too many businesses are driven by finance. It's very rare to find a CEO who came up through marketing. In fact, when we find one, we get really excited because we know that that brand is going to most of the time not only try to be uh, financially successful, but to be special or significant in some other way as well. But if you're an operations or a supply chain or a finance guy or gal, you're just kind of wired to think about uh, finding efficiencies as opposed to really exploiting and managing customer relationships. What is something that a young entrepreneur, an entrepreneur or founder out there could do that's relatively easy that could get them started on this cult-like following? Well, a big one, like, and, and it's interesting to say a, a new startups. I think that actually new startups are special because out of necessity, the founder is also the, the lead salesperson, for example, or is also receiving the customer service calls. I know that when we were doing some counseling uh, with a multi-billion dollar brand, I asked the C-suite, like, when's the last time that you've actually spoken to a customer? And the average across those eight or nine executives was over two years, over two years since they'd had, a, you know, other than obviously, like, I'm not talking about going to a cocktail party and having somebody say, I love your brand. I'm talking about been in your store, been on the phones, responded to emails, like their job was they viewed that as like I graduated from customer interactions. I I now have people who do that for me and I can delegate that. It's like the further removed you are from your customer, the more in jeopardy you are of drifting into irrelevance. So when you're young or when you're starting a business, you know, and you see a lot of misfires in the tech space because they tend to be like computer science nerds or geeks. And I mean that in a good way that they can like, code the crap out of stuff and they you know you see these stories of like they pounded code for 72 hours and they're just building stuff like building stuff because you can or selling stuff because you can make money is not the path to greatness it's servicing a particular customer and their unmet needs so you must engineer systems in place 
that provide consistent feedback loops where you're just constantly, what about this? And do you like this better? And I'm testing this thing and I'm co-creating and what do you want? So I, we like to tell our clients that like, you know, from whatever, 1950 to 2010 or yeah, 2010, that over that 60 year period, the craft of marketing was most valued for how well you could talk. How clever could you be? How funny could you be? How emotional can you be? How concise can you be? Copy and art and pictures and video. But now, really since the advent of social media and the proliferation of mobile devices and the explosion of Google and crowdsourcing, now it's how well can you listen and respond, right? And, and now you're going to react in very unique ways and it's kind of the death of the mass market and it's getting into incredibly personalized, tailored communications that have the opportunity to go viral because somebody found something that you did, you know, particularly awesome. And uh, that's where I think, you know, you see sort of the mega brands of today, they've sort of perfected their listen and respond device versus their, you know, use of, of paid media. How important do you think character of founders, CEOs, chief executives in general, how important do you think character is in the ability to start a cult brand or, or maintain one? You know, it's a really interesting question because I would have thought largely irrelevant before we did the gathering. Um, so about eight years ago, we started doing a deep dive into cult brands and trying to diagnose them and, and most importantly, celebrate them so that the world could see examples of what good looks like. Because I think that the ad industry in particular and things like the Cons Lion or the Golden Pencil or the Ad Age Awards, all these award shows that we're trying to teach young marketers what good look likes was really just celebrations of creativity with very little thought about the effectiveness of those um, campaigns. Um, when we started interviewing The Gathering, it's gotten to the point now, so we're in year nine, and I do all of the um, preliminary evaluations. I can almost tell within five minutes the cult, the cult likelihood of this brand based on the generosity and the authenticity and the character of the brand steward. Uh, because I almost feel like the more of a jerk, the more entitled, the more better than you kind of a superiority complex, um, the harder they're trying to compensate for something that's not genuinely awesome. Versus when you take somebody like an Airbnb or a Yeti or a Lululemon or a Gatorade or a Porsche or a Jeep, like these brands are just run by some of the most sincere, genuine even like Dana White, I remember when Dana White came to the gathering to accept the award for the UFC, you know, he was one of the more celebrity-like, you know, brand leaders that was there. He certainly had more followers. People were interested in his autograph and in interviewing him afterwards. And when he finished his speech, I said, Dana, let me take you back up to your room where you can have some privacy before the next event. And he's like, what are you talking about? I flew all the way to Banff. I'm here. Let's like let's mingle. Let's get amongst the people. It's like, you know, he just sits down and, and couldn't have been more gracious with his time. And he couldn't have been more genuine and acknowledging his, his flaws. And, you know, I've, we've since become Brene Brown fans because we've had Brene Brown to the gathering. And she's taught us a lot about vulnerability and leadership and the ability to, um, to stop trying to pretend like you, you know, all the answers and, 
So I, I would actually say now I, I put character near the top of the list. I used to put courage. I used to put creativity and not creativity in the sense of like funny ads, but creativity in the sense of um, clever problem solving. But uh, I would now add character to that roster of things that are prerequisites for brands to uh, achieve cult-like status. Those folks that you mentioned are pretty spectacular. If there's one thing that you've learned from just even those couple of people that you mentioned, is there anything that sticks out as being maybe the most impactful thing you've learned from the gathering, let's say in general? Yeah, I I guess. I think there's something about um, the genuineness and the generosity of the leaders behind, I, you know, there's a, there's an expression called F you money. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Like, Oh, this person is F not personally money. familiar. What's that? <laughs> not personally familiar. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, I, I hate it because I think what it means is people aspire to get to such a level of wealth and independence that they can just tell other people to F off. Like they're no longer at the mercy or beholden to other people. They can finally have it their way. And I've always hated that besides just the crassness of the language. I I was like, why is that the ultimate goal to, to be able to treat people, you know, either like dirt or to, to become an Island or, um, you know, I understand the idea of independence, but the reality is we're social creatures. We're, we work better as, as teams. Uh, joy is found in the collaboration of others. Um, and so I just, I feel like, um, you know, we should all, we should all aspire to a point where we have the privilege of being able to surround ourselves with super interesting people and working on interesting challenges um, and that's kind of the opposite of the ethos. And I'm probably, I'm sure I'm, you're going to have a listener that's going to say Chris has it all wrong. I know that there's some different interpretations, but when I've heard people kind of talk about FU money, it's done with this sense of I can't wait till I can rise above all this. And uh, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is to stay in the thick of it and to be challenged by people and to be pleasantly surprised by people. And yeah, you'll have to kiss some frogs on that journey. Not everybody you're going to interact with is going to be great, but I think that that helps you just like rainy days helps you appreciate the sunshine interacting with and associating with some less than desirable people really make it more obvious and more awesome when you get to hang out with some really great people. I think that's the goal is self-actualization and and being around people that support that and that you can learn from. I'm appreciative that you shared that. I, I know that Chris, you knew you were not born an entrepreneur, and I want to turn to that. Your dad was a marketer. You went into corporate marketing. You know, you've done a master's degree, and then you made a transition into entrepreneurship somewhere around a decade ago. Was that just a natural progression for you, or, or was it difficult? I think becoming, getting to the stage at thirty six or thirty seven to decide I'm going to now be an entrepreneur felt pretty natural. There was no like intentional goal that by 40, I'm going to run my own business or I'm going to be the president of a firm. Uh, Some of it was done by necessity. When I moved to Canada to run an agency, um, 
I didn't really consider that it was it was kind of like an entrepreneurial cheat because while I was now running a my own small business, I didn't have to like birth it out of my mom's basement and eat ramen for a year while we were waiting. I, I inherited a business that was already fairly successful, and my job was to not screw it up, and I did. We ended up losing our biggest account within two years, and so that forced us to decide okay, what am I going to do? Do I go back to the thing that was comfortable and familiar or do I blaze ahead into something unknown and, and terrifying? And um, I, I'm grateful that I chose the latter and decided to be uncomfortable. Brene Brown talks about you only can you can choose courage or comfort. You can never have both at the same time. And there's some days I just want to be comfortable and there's some days I want to be courageous. And I'm grateful that that day I chose to be uh, courageous. So I think that becoming an entrepreneur or starting that that path was very natural. Figuring out how to be a good entrepreneur is still a lesson that I'm learning. And it's something that I don't think people talk enough about in terms of entrepreneurship is the dealing with the demons, the self-doubt, the, the uh, having the intestinal fortitude, for the ups and the downs, knowing how far and how fast, the the pros and cons of bringing in partners, or the pros and cons of, of taking in other people's money, and um, you know scaling, and there's just so much diversity in terms of trying to run a business that I think it's silly to think that one person possesses all that know-how and finds joy in all the diverse parts of it. Um, so that's where I, I think I've become a bit of a champion for entrepreneurs through our work with Communo and, um, and now having, you know, I'm trying my best not to make sure that my experience doesn't mean it's everybody else's experience. Uh, I think that there's nuance, but uh, I, what I've learned is that there's a tremendous amount of respect and just entrepreneurship, not, not your business, but just the, the, the idea of being an entrepreneur is a discipline. Uh, it can be taught. I think there are people who are more natural at it than others. Uh, I'm an unnatural entrepreneur, so my learning curve has been painful and steep. Um, but I'm uh, I'm grateful for it. I think that the juice has been worth the squeeze, so to speak. But it has not been. Uh, I, I don't think anybody had properly prepared me for what was what you know what I needed to be good at to go forward to make this work. You spoke about needing to learn necessary skills for entrepreneurship. What is the process that you use to learn those skills? Well, a lot of it is is role models, mentorship, surrounding yourself. You know, um, when I talk about, I mean, growing up, my family was not entrepreneurial. Uh, our, our, my parents' friends and therefore the kids that I hung out with. Uh, were not entrepreneurial. Um, when I went into college in the you know mid '90s, I don't even think there were classes on entrepreneurism. It was all about you know basically how do you get a job at a Fortune 500 company. Certainly, when I went on to grad school, the whole purpose was to get a job at a Fortune 100 company. So, um, like I just I was in a I was in a bubble where everybody that I knew was aspiring for the same dream which was to be a corporate executive at a giant multi-billion dollar international conglomerate, right? So, you know, you, you, all we have is our experience. And I had surrounded myself with people who, you know, did not have small little businesses. I, I remember the first time I read a book, it was called The Millionaire Next Door. And it talked about like the majority of millionaires or small business owners 
that run like one to five million dollar, you know, businesses like pest control companies or service industries, not not like hair salons or restaurants. I think those are really tough businesses, but, you know, some things that can scale and it just kind of blew my mind. I, I thought that the, the millionaires were the people that, you know, had stock options at Ford Motor Company or Home Depot or Victoria's Secret or these kind of desirable brands I wanted to work at. And to realize that, no, the you know, the bulk of people you would never know are entrepreneurs because they have not blue collar, but kind of smaller, scrappier businesses was that, was that was the first seed that was even planted in my mind that there's an alternative path. The number one most important thing I learned from that book is millionaires only spend 30 grand on a car. So that's why I still drive a Honda Civic. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was actually, I thought it was a pick. I thought they, I thought it was like more, they disproportionately own like 10 year old pickup trucks. <laughs> oh, now I got to sell the car. Yeah. You, need to get, you need to get an old F-150. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of those things that you've learned recently on that entrepreneurial journey? Wow. It's in, you know, I'm at a point now where it's tough because a lot of my journey is also dealing with the scaling of my business. Um, you know, I've learned a lot about the, uh, the pros and cons. We, we decided, so with Colt and with The Gathering, they were very organic. We funded them ourselves through our own retained earnings. And when we launched Communo, we were always sort of titillated with the idea of, of going further, faster, sort of pouring. I, I like to say we put, you know, uh, you're buying lighter fluid that you put on your flame, um, which is great. But if you've ever poured lighter fluid on a flame, you know that unless you have a really good base of tinder and kindling and firewood, that the flame goes away as fast as the lighter fluid is burned off. And so lighter fluid is to a, a small entrepreneurial company, essentially the equivalent of what excessive advertising and sales promotions are to big brands or these artificial stimulants that are very effective as long as you're continuing to pour them on. And when you shut them off, things dwindle back to some undesirable state. And so, um, you know, we're spending a lot of time right now dealing with, um, you know, the, the, the opportunities and challenges of growth, um, taking things internationally. You know, I'm an American, but I got really accustomed to working in Canada. The two things that are very challenging about going back to America is um, the the salaries and the expenses are just higher because the you know the $130,000 associate in Canada is going to cost you $130,000 in the States just because of the foreign exchange rate. And then there's about twenty dollars to $30,000 of health benefits that are incremental on the states that you don't pay in Canada because of socialized health care. So you know, even something that small, like if I need a $100,000 salesperson for Communo, hiring them in Toronto versus hiring them in New York or Austin or Salt Lake is, you know, it's a 50% premium just for the privilege of working in another country. And then you obviously have tax issues. And then California has its own set of weirdness in terms of uh, how they deal with labor laws. So there's just a lot of stuff. Like I didn't get into business because I enjoy understanding the employment restrictions of Southern California, right? These are like these things that you're like, oh, in addition to trying to grow customers and build great products and improve your marketing, you know, you get to, you now get to spend the weekend understanding, you know, how are we going to hire somebody in LA? Um, and that's just kind of part of what it means to be an entrepreneur. Nobody else is going to figure it out for you. So you can either pay money to have somebody do it. And sometimes that is 
the option, either because you don't want to screw it up or because you don't want to give up your weekends. Or sometimes it's, you know what, get out, get out Google and, and, and do some research and become an expert in a bunch of crazy things. I remember my boss in Texas, I, I worked for a very large ad agency, and she ended up resigning to join a very small agency. And a lot of people viewed that as a demotion. Like, like why are you taking this giant step back? And she goes, bigger is not better. Like working at this giant agency, I was worrying about rats in the rafters and sexual harassment lawsuits and, you know, ridiculous client contract breaches and all these kinds of things that like sometimes just dealing with simpler stuff improves your quality of life. And I, I respected her saying, I'm not here to impress anybody. I'm not here to you know live somebody else's dream. There's things that I want to spend my time doing and things I don't want to spend my time doing. So I'm going to put myself in an environment that allows me to maximize that. Is there anything that you did differently when you compare the founding of Cult Collective and Communo from an entrepreneurship standpoint? I, I would hope so, because I found Communo five or six years after Cult. Um, I think some of the things I know I did well in both cases was surround myself with great people. I think we did a great job positioning ourselves to fill an unmet need in the marketplace. Again, none of these businesses were built uh, because we said, hey, here's a way to go get rich. These were businesses that were built saying, hey, there's a there's a problem that exists that nobody's properly addressing. So uh, maybe we should. So I think they were both founded for the right reason. Uh, I was flanked by people with complementary skill sets so that I didn't have to pretend to be good at things that I wasn't good at. Um, I think both cases that the timing was right. I think, you know, if you were to ask Harvard Business Review, um, I think the, the single biggest indicator between sex, success and failure is frankly less to do with the competence or even the capital of the business, but rather the timing of the business. There's just, you know, even something like Airbnb or, or WeWork, which is now a bad example, but or Uber. But I mean, these things being timed with recessions, being timed with changes in the market, being timed with the proliferation. You know, Uber doesn't exist if there's not, you know, three or four G proliferation of of smartphone technology. Um, you know, the gig economy, the 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 the, the devise of the have and have not sort of caste system in America that's created a new lower class looking for supplemental income. Like there's just a lot of forces that go into play that will help a business decide uh, is it gonna work or not. And so um I, I think we did I think I hope that we've gotten smarter uh each time. Like I said, the biggest difference is that Communo's growth is being fueled by third-party investors who have their own set of expectations for our growth that mean that I'm not in charge anymore. It's, it's going to, you know, we're, it's now a bigger group of decision makers making decisions for reasons beyond just what feels natural or organic, but uh, it's a race. And so it has to go further faster so that we get that first mover advantage. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that, that you wish that I had? Or maybe you've got a message that you want to end the episode on. Spend more time on an honest self-assessment. And, and candidly, it's not something I think we're very good at, which is why you should have a coach or a best friend or a life partner or somebody else that can be a better reflection of who you are than, than you or the mirror. Um, I, I worry that too many people spend too much time 
focusing on the thing that they're going to do, the business they're going to start, the product they're going to sell, the job that they're going to get, the position they're going to hold, and they don't spend enough time thinking about what they're hoping to get out of it from a self-actualization or fulfillment standpoint. I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs that when I dig deep enough, I'm like, dude, just go get a real job. And, and, and I, I use real with air quotes, but like, go, go become an employee someplace. You'd make more money. You'd be less stressed. You'd be happy. Like, you, you're chasing some false dream of what you think entrepreneurship is. And I don't think you've done an honest enough assessment that you could actually be really happy if you found the right boss or the right company. And then conversely, I know a lot of people that are, you know, they dread their job. They're just going through life. They're living for the happy hour or the bowling league or the weekend. I'm like, if your favorite day is Friday and not Monday, put yourself in this. Life is too short, man. Put yourself in a situation where you enjoy going to work. Not every day. You know, no, and that's why they have to pay you to show up. But, <laughs> but, you know, we spend way too much time to sort of have a dread or a drudgery around our careers. And so maybe you should either change your job, um, or, or, or do something more entrepreneurial. I know when, when I finish the gathering every year, the biggest piece of feedback I get is I've realized I need to quit. The organization I'm with is too old school, too conservative, too traditional. They're never going to be special. I'm spending my best years of my life, you know, on, on sort of a, of a, of a dying opportunity. Uh, so I like that. I like, you know, what, find opportunities to sort of be inspired and, and where can you go be your best self and give yourself time. I don't think it's going to happen in a year or two, but put yourself on a, on a journey that's going to allow you to find some joy in what you do for a living. And, uh, and if that's entrepreneurship, great. If that's employment, great. One is not better than the other. Uh, there are pros and cons to both. But that, that's what I would hope is that more people uh, – I subscribe to this life philosophy that I learned from a mentor of mine called Blair Inns that I'm never going to retire. I will work until I am physically and mentally unable to do so. I'm not waiting for her to be 65 for my life to begin or for my happiness to take place. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live my life and just retire every year from something I hate so that by the time I'm 60, 65 years old, all I'm doing is the stuff that I like. And why would I ever quit that? And I, I think more people that embrace that sort of philosophy that um, you know, don't defer that happiness you don't know what's going to happen in your life with your health, with your relationships. It's like take advantage of it. Carpe diem, seize the day. Any other uh, platitudes or uh, I don't know. I don't want to become trite or you know stereotypical, but it, it, it those things are good advice at graduation ceremonies for a reason because people who have quote unquote made it kind of look back and say, I wish I had taken some inventory of my life earlier. Well, Chris, carpe diem and seize the life. You're just naming tattoos that I have. <laughs> I'm reading your back tattoos. Yeah, lower back. <laughs> I want to thank you, my friend, for taking this time to chat with us today. Uh, you're just somebody that is so remarkable in, in the marketing space. And I'm so, so grateful that you sat down with us. And for the listeners out there, if you want to learn more about Chris, you can find him personally on LinkedIn at Chris Neeland. You can find Cult Collective on their website at cultideas.com. You can find The Gathering at cultgathering.com and communo at communo.com. Chris, my friend, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, Jared. Enjoy the conversation. If you like this episode, you might also like episode number 26, 
with Clear Motive Marketing Group founder and CEO, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at Strive Accelerator and find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.